One of the joys of this podcast is to um, present um, thoughts that have uh, been um, in gestation or even in crucible for years and years and years, uh, and to actually finally sort of present some uh, some acquired experience on subjects that that, that matter to me. And I hope, um, by extension, for whatever reason, they can uh, matter to you, the listener. And uh, for that uh, reason, I'm going to speak today about a subject I've given a thought to for um, over 50 years and uh, have had some very um, positive and also some very frustrating experiences in relation to. And this uh, subject is foreign languages, the um, meaning of the positives and fruit of the consequences of and also the terrible uh, frustrations, disappointments, and paralyses located under the heading of learning foreign languages. Please don't immediately tune out because uh, the joy of it, uh, and if you've learned no foreign languages, the interest of it, and even the um, self-awareness of your own mother tongue, your own language, even if there's only one language which you've had to. But you know, if you're, if you're living in this world, um, certainly in the case of the Spanish language uh, for Americans today, you're going to understand about the frustrations and also the um, necessities involved in, and even the philosophical sort of mandate and ultimately the loving um, requirement that we enter into the heads of our fellow beings in relation to the languages in which we all communicate. Long words, and before I begin, this is brief, I do want to say there's been a little breakthrough. If you're a listener of these podcasts, I want to hear from you. And I've been leery of doing Facebook and doing a number of other things, which I've had some unpleasant experiences with in the past and which are purely personal to me. But I would very much like to now open up the podcast to some engagement, to some participation, to some uh, comments and feedback. I was fascinated that uh, until very recently, I believe, uh, Rod McEwen, the the famous um, one, whatever you think of his work, um, had a site in which that was interactive, you could write the famous Rod McEwen and express some thought you had about a poem or a song, and then he was actually writing back. He would actually write back on this podcast, and it's fascinating. Uh, But uh, this is a little bit more personal. I have opened a uh, Gmail account, uh, which you uh, could write a comment, a positive question, whatever, a, a, a query, a criticism, whatever it is that you have to say, and I will try to answer it. And the address of the new account for this podcast is pz's podcast at gmail.com that's p as in paul z as in zebra s as in samuel p as in paul o d as in delta c a s as in samuel t as in thomas at gmail.com once again that's pz's no apostrophe podcast P-Z-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-D at gmail.com.
com. Forgive me the belaboring, but I'm uh, I'm so excited and interested, and I really want to lay that out. And over the next four podcasts or so, I will continue to give that address. And all you need to do is put that address in, as if it were me personally, because it is me personally. I'm the only one who can read what you write, and I will uh, uh, regularly go into that podcast. And if uh, there's a thought, a query, a kudo, a criticism, a word, uh, uh, just uh, an engagement, a response of any kind, I will endeavor to uh, to follow through and reply from that Gmail address. Thanks so much. Now. <clears throat> The question of learning foreign languages, it's, uh, it's really um, uh, gotten me so interested recently is the joy of uh, understanding, knowing, and um, being able to build on in both literature, film, music, and you name it, the thought world of another culture in its own language. I learned this long ago in Germany that although the german people almost uh, to a to a person speak perfect english because they are now taught English from age four in their public schools. And if you learn a language from age four, that is not your mother tongue, you can become on the verge of being bilingual. And there's always been a tradition in these European countries of uh, children going uh, overseas for a summer or for a semester early in high school years, uh, even a year abroad to polish up their English and so you have a culture there that uh, in which everyone speaks English and everyone's sort of trying to outdo their uh, peers in showing how well they speak English because it is the lingua franca. And if you are an English speaker, uh, they want to show off to you and also practice their English. And so you have to almost bribe them to speak their own language in their own country. This is a history that I know for years of living in Switzerland and in uh, Germany. And if you ever lived in Austria, you'll find it exactly the same thing. The same is less true in France for all sorts of chauvinistic uh, reasons, which are fascinating. But um, the... uh the uh, the mistake, though, is you get uh, uh, seduced into thinking that because their English is so good that you're really able to have a full conversation. And in actual fact, no one uh, really uh, is uh, fully able to present their full inner selves in a second language unless, they're, unless they grew up as babies speaking uh, two different languages at the same time. And that is often the case and for all sorts of reasons in people's lives. Uh, they grow up up. Their mother tongue is Spanish, but they are in an English-speaking environment from very early or um, you name it. And so they do become a kind of child patois of bilinguality. And uh, that is uh, wonderful. But to really talk to someone as they truly exist within as well as without, you have to really communicate in their Muttersprache, their mother tongue. And I found this in France. I found this in the German-speaking world. I've found this in so many environments. You have to speak their uh, language at some level. And they will not generally let down their hair people of all kinds.
lines unless they let down their hair in their uh, in their language of origin. So to really understand uh, a, another person who speaks grew up speaking another language, you have to speak their language, um, their mother tongue, in order to get their mother self, to get to their child self. It's just a fact, and it's uh, also something that reassures them. What happens whenever you uh, finally break through the resistance where they want to speak English to either impress you or to quote practice, once you break through it and they begin to feel they can speak their own language, it just pours out there. They become then completely, uh, no boundaries at all, and often they think you speak better French or better German than you actually do because they honor you once you've broken through the uh, the husk the, to the kernel of themselves. They honor you by speaking and you have to then really put your money where your mouth is and concentrate with absolute um, hard work and complete concentration. And this makes living in a foreign country, if you're really trying to break through, <clears throat> and many expats don't try to break through. They live in expatriate little communities where they speak their own language for anything real, and then they just venture out from time to time into the uh, uh, the foreign language community in which they're actually geographically situated. So, to, But to really get through, you have to do this. And it's absolutely wonderful when it happens, but it demands tremendous concentration and a kind of courage, if I may put it that way, to uh, to suddenly find yourself over your head and drowning in a sea of language which you can barely understand. So uh, the spoken language, uh, uh, foreign language study, has the great advantage of getting through to the, the child within, the child who learned French or German or Spanish as a child, or Chinese for that matter, whatever it is, or Arabic, and then you're able to touch the real deeper buried self. That's the great advantage in interpersonal communication of being able to speak another person's language, which is foreign or second language to you. Now, the second great advantage of speaking a foreign language, and especially reading a foreign language, is that it opens the literature to you. There is anyone who is, does this, and, and not as many uh, do as did in the past, before English became so universal. Remember, we this is the Latin of uh, the Roman Empire or the Koine Greek of the eastern end of the Roman Empire as to the world today. The common language of Koine Greek, which was spoken by merchants and scholars throughout the eastern Mediterranean and much of the Roman world because it was the language of the educated, including in Italy to some extent then, Roma, uh, the language, although it wasn't the legal language, it was the language of, uh, of education and the media, so to speak. And so Koine Greek had the same um, currency as in its context as English does today throughout the entire world. Everybody wants to speak English and everybody wants to come to America. This is the remember everybody in the in the southern hemisphere deep down nourishes the enormous hope of coming to America for whatever reasons we can put all kinds of value judgments on that, but it's just a fact and therefore the speaking of uh, of English is uh, uh, something that is universally sought. Uh, but we will not get into the um, the Kikuyu heads, the Sanskrit heads, the Arabic heads of our fellow human beings without learning their language. Otherwise, give up the thought, because still people in the hearth and in the home and their first readers are in their mother language, whatever it is. The second great benefit, in other words, of, of foreign language is being able to read Homer in Greek, Virgil in Latin, Hugo in French, Cervantes in Spanish, and Goethe or Kant 
in German, although uh, Kant is always easier in English than in German. Uh, that's a truism that actually is true. Uh, or Luther, most of whose writings were in Latin, actually. Uh, or uh, any number of uh, writers, uh, Theodore de Fontana, I mean, you name it. Uh, or uh, Dante in Italian. And I'm sure you have your personal uh, pet language that fits, and that's your experience, and that's wonderful. But the second great advantage is to be able to read Dante in Italian, something I cannot do a single word of, and I feel very badly. I, I think that it must have been wonderful for T.S. Eliot to be able to do that, or for, for Aldous Huxley to throw around without any kind of condescension and never any translating all the Italian that he throws around uh, in his uh, novels. Uh, this is a wonderful thing. So that's the second. Now let me comment a little bit more about it. Um, the uh, in written languages, it's quite different learning a dead, quote, dead language than it is learning a, an, a language alive. In other words, um, if you've studied a classical language, Latin or ancient Greek, you have given to your life a richness and a, 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 a jewel, uh, the, 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 the pearl of Kandahar, I mean the, the diamond of Kohinoor. You've, you've given yourself a tremendous blessing, uh, a written language to be able to read. Um, in my case, I never got to Homer, but I did get to Aeschylus uh, in ancient Greek, uh, so wishing Homer was there. But Homer's difficult. You have to have a whole set of courses to understand him. But at least I got far enough to read Aeschylus in the Greek with help, and certainly the New Testament and uh, many, many other uh, uh, works of ancient Greek literature. And the same would be in Latin. Uh, to read Lucretius in Latin uh, is to know what John Milton knew. And it's very important. Uh, the written language puts before you in a text a uh, an inner understanding uh, it mediates through out of your uh, mother tongue it mediates to you through the great challenge of climbing the mountain of the written word and then discovering line by line a universal idea description or truth or image or sound even this is a great and wonderful thing quadripudante putrem sonitu quatit ungula campum as the four-wheeled chariot raced across the landscape it shook the ground with the hoofs of the horses uh, <coughs> but even that the 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 idea of it the sound of it the power of it the image of it the antiquity of it the evocative uh, other culture other voice otherness of it this creates a tremendous <coughs> possibility of widening in the human experience i know these are all clichés but they're true and i'm encouraging you but i can't encourage you you, you may we well pass the possibility of even spending the time on learning another uh, spoken language, let alone a written language. But I do want to uh, say before I finish a couple of observations uh, that I've just always wanted to put out there about the nature of language because ich plage mich mit Fremdsprache. I, I, I plague myself. I, um, I lacerate myself with the tremendously um, wounding and costly task of of trying to master a foreign language. I uh, 
excoriate myself. I work on this and I'm so often terribly caught with my, uh, you know, completely uh, unawares by ignorance uh, or by false understanding or I think I know something that I don't or I think I can translate something but just just by the the, the way I've switched a verb to a, a a verb to a subject or I've changed the order or I've gotten the wrong case on an accusative and made it a dative, <clears throat> I get the whole meaning of the thing wrong. I once translated a passage from Hebrew into English and I got it right because I purely because I got the right subject and the right uh, object and then from there I was able to to get the context knowing the basic story from the Old Testament and I translated it gratefully and 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 uh, and successfully but on the other hand I was once translating from ancient Greek for an examination elsewhere <clears throat> a passage from one of the church fathers it may have been St John Chrysostom but uh, or Ambrose St Ambrose but it was a, one of the church fathers or early heroes of the Christian church and I got something wrong at the very beginning and then the mistake I made at the beginning informed everything I had I I think it was like you sort of you, you, instead of it being uh, um, uh, the shepherd uh, gave to the flock uh, the bread and the wine of the divine mystery, and it spread throughout the town the rumor of the great and transcendent uh, liturgy that it was occurring at the house of Gaius Flavulus Metullus. <laughs> I think I translated it as something like the great ant came out of a nest of uh, of webs that undulated and spread their effects completely and totally engulfing the town with uh, with um, uh, obnoxious uh, clamors of whispered rumors. I mean, I got the whole thing completely wrong because I made a, a mistake in the translation of the noun, the proper, the, the, the noun that uh, began the paragraph. And I failed. I failed the translation. It had a huge impact on my life, uh, or at least my academic life at that point because of uh, a, a one horrendous mistake made at the beginning. And you all know this. You know, there are Hebrew verbs that have uh, the same pointed verb uh, without any difference in the points. These are the little dots on the top of a Hebrew verb or any change in any of the vowels or the uh, uh, consonants uh, can mean seven different things uh, depending entirely on context. It can definitely mean three. And if you know your Hebrew Bible better than I do, you can find seven different possible meanings for uh, for uh, for one verb which looks exactly the same down to the last detail. So you can really get it wrong. Um, so a written language um, is wonderful, but it, uh, any language is, but the written language suffers from if you don't know it well, and who has the time to know anything well enough, can suffer from one small error. Um, now, what I find, I used to hear, you'll probably hear, so-and-so was uh, fluent in seven languages. Or he was a polymath, this brilliant person. She knew four languages. She, the Germans say she was begopt. She was gifted. She knew four languages fluently. Well, I used to hear that, and I used to believe it. And I would say, oh, my gosh, here I am just struggling to know a third language well and a fourth or fifth language for an exam, a dead language that I've got to know to pass something. How can it be that... Miss So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so or Dr. So-and-so or John Stuart Mill, I mean, you go right down the list, could have known five or six languages fluently. Well, 
What I discovered through years of observation, you may disagree, uh, but these are my observations, and I have been thinking about this for for 50-plus years uh, as I've tried to understand how learning occurs in uh, in foreign languages, right up to recent times, right up to my 60s, I've been thinking about this and trying to... Under, I was in Morocco not all that long ago, um, and I had been speaking German for so long, and suddenly I was required to speak French. And it came back very, very hard. It was very difficult to even... I was at one point. I told a taxi driver, "Follow that car." Uh, I just I was, suivez cette voiture, s'il vous plaît, monsieur. And we were in some place like Marrakesh. Literally, I felt like I was right out of an Inspector Clouseau movie. Suivez cette voiture, monsieur. But I had been speaking another language so much that it came very. I, I, it almost came out, uh, you know, das Auto. It, it, I, I, I want to talk about that about uh, languages. But when you someone you read speaks fluently five. Or six languages. Let me tell you, A, there may be one or two people who are that gifted, who have that kind of a brain that can do that. I've, I've never met one, but there may be a few. But what they usually mean is that person was fluent in perhaps three, possibly four languages, including his own or her own, and that person knew their way around an Italian text or road signs in Greek or knew could could basically translate uh, the editorial or the feuilleton in a the Stuttgart, you know, uh, paper. Uh, but when it came to actually deeply immersion understanding of the language as here. Heard as spoken and as seen. Remember, that's the way you judge your knowledge of a language. Uh, it comes by hearing. Do you understand what you hear? Can you speak in such a way as to be understood with increasing sophistication and subtlety, or at least general subtlety? And third, can you read and write? Can you read the language? Can you write the language? Can you understand by hearing? And most importantly, can you speak it, which is called active? Her hearing is passive and reading is passive. Writing is active and speaking is active. And for most people, because of the embarrassment and the insecurity and the sort of personal laying yourself out on the limb, ready to have it cut off at any moment because of an inaccuracy. It's the speaking that takes the most courage. It's the speaking, always the speaking, going out into you know, Toulon and actually speaking with the people, knowing that they're laughing at you, that they probably are correcting you. They're probably saying, oh, this pathetic American, or they're going to try to speak English to you. Usually in France, they're, they're so surprised when an English speaker speaks French that they sort of, they encourage you. They're glad of it. They feel a little bit affirmed. In Germany, they always speak English back to you to show you how smart they are. And you have to, uh, you have to per- persevere. And then once they get the fact that you're serious, which they admire, they're very admiring of people who try to learn a language, their language seriously, then they'll just take you in and that's all they'll do. And you'll really have an experience, but be prepared to, to drown uh, for the first 10 times. But So courage, courage, courage. But uh, my experience is that those people who know a lot of languages really know essentially just three languages. And the <clears throat> possibly a fourth, I'll tell you how that works. What happens is that these are people, <clears throat> these extreme poly, uh, polylingual people are people who usually grew up with a uh, father and a mother who spoke two different languages. In other words, they had an English-speaking father and a German-speaking mother, or they vice versa, or usually it's the other way around, or they had a Spanish-speaking mother and an English-speaking father, or they lived uh, among missionaries uh, in a foreign country where the, there was a lot of talk at home in the foreign language because you were trying to reach people in their language, but you were, in fact, ultimately 
remotely in the bedroom an English speaker. People that I know that know four or even five languages are usually people who actually started knowing two from the moment they emerged into life and from the womb. And there are people who've had this situation. They're little children active in a bilingual environment, and little tiny children are capable of becoming completely bilingual, although very often later on, because it's so tied up with their childhood uh, synapses, they often either are embarrassed or forget how to speak the second of the two languages they learned as a baby or an infant or a child or a toddler or a little child, and they, or they become, they so associate it with their childhood that baby talk comes out. They can speak, they can speak Spanish baby talk or German baby talk, but they can barely speak uh, it as an adult because it stopped. The, the bilingual setting stopped when they were in their teenage years or late they went to school. Now, um, but people that know a lot of languages, <clears throat> they held with two languages as a infant, and then they learned a third in school, let's say the French language in school. Uh, no, I'm not counting German and uh, Latin and Greek here, which are wonderful, or Hebrew for that matter, for a non-Hebrew speaker uh, or a Gentile person, uh, because that's uh, th- those are written languages uh, for most people, uh, uh, unless they're Greeks uh, or uh, live in Israel or are um, um, the resuscitated ghost, like the curse of the faceless man of Marcellus, the Pompeian centurion, who is risen from the dead in the Naples Museum a.k.a. Griffith Observatory, in 1956 in that wonderful movie about a Roman centurion who died in Pompeii, who's risen from the dead. Fascinating movie. I've got it right downstairs. It's recently been reissued. The Curse of the Faithless Man. They interviewed Richard Anderson, who plays the the scientist doctor in it, the hero once uh, uh, who was in Forbidden Planet and a million other movies. You've seen him in a million different movies. And they said, Mr. Anderson, what was it like uh, making Curse of the Faithless Man? And I so admired his answer. said, you know, I've completely forgotten that movie. I don't even remember what you're talking about, but he's the star. Now, um, uh, you, so that's when people say they know all these languages, don't believe them. First, they got two languages for some historic reason in their family uh, initially. And secondly, they learned a third because you can learn a third very, very well, especially if you go abroad, having learned five years of it in school and high school, and then you go abroad and then you continue to read it through your adult years. You can learn a third language, French, German, Spanish, whatever it may be, Greek very well. Uh, now, a fourth language almost always comes later, and the older you are, the harder it is to learn the language. And what the rule here is that the fourth language chases out the third. This is a a rule that I've not only seen in myself, but I've asked many, many people in language training schools where I've spent time or with people who uh, were living um, lives that were highly international. And I said, how does that work if you really know a third language well, and then you learn a fourth language in your later adult years, how does it work? And they all have the same experience that the fourth language chases out the third. In other words, they know the third language, but the fourth has a way of chasing it out. Something about the brain, uh, when you try to speak the third language, out comes the fourth if you've learned the fourth. It's sort of like uh, the third is there, but when it comes up to the uh, top reaches of the ocean from at the bottom of the ocean floor, it goes through a kind of pressure change, the third language, and it hits the, the sort of slick on the surface, which which is the fourth language, and it comes out as the slick. Uh, I learned this very, um, to my tremendous shock and shame in uh, Germany, where I had to, I was required to learn German at a 
at a pretty good level of expression, especially verbally uh, speaking it. And uh, I had to, to pass tests, I had to be able to speak the language, not just read it and understand it in the hearing. And um, later on back in France or talking in French or with French people or especially traveling in French speaking environments, I would summon my old French, which came back from when I was a child or a kid, and out would, it would come in German. You know, uh, s'il vous plaît, uh, gib mir uh, das Wasser uh, sur la table. <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous, but if you've ever done this, you'll, you'll immediately recognize the fourth language chases out the third. Or if you're not bilingual as a child, the third language chases out the second. So I am one, for example, who was almost bilingual in French because of really good early training in the French, but I wasn't bilingual as a baby, like many whom I, whom I envy. And so the French was, was really ser serviceable for a long time until I had to learn German in terms of my uh, work that I was doing academically. And then uh, every time I would try to speak French, out would come uh, German. And that's true to this day, and I resent it in a way, because every time I really want to speak French in a situation or communicate in French, out again comes the, the slick the the oil spill of the of the fourth language the third language uh completely covers over the second language and those of who have had two languages as children i know many people who are bilingual from childhood in spanish and english then they've learned french or german and then they learn another and they've all confirmed that the the two languages they learned as an adult the most recent language uh, over uh, holds over a cover to the less recent language and the less recent language is chased out as it were mentally by the fourth language and my little prayer has been that i could get my french back and i think the only way to do it would be to live actively and 100 percent 24 hours a day for um a period of time in uh, in a french in speaking environment and then hope and also make an absolute meditative effort each morning to shut the door a la george sanders in village of the damned remember against the alien children he shut the door to their thoughts their intrusive thoughts uh their intruding nosy thoughts by setting up in his mind the picture of a brick wall well i would have to really do that for my in terms of the third language so the second language could come back it's the strangest thing um so uh this is uh, my little thought i hope that illuminates a little bit of your your first I said that a foreign language is the only way to get into people who grew up speaking as children, whatever language they speak. You cannot know a person until you know their child, their inner child. And that's why learning languages is so essential to understanding of people deeply uh, and speaking with them and letting them come out as they are in their babyhood, which is always their first language. And secondly, it opens up the doors enormously to um, fabulous uh, frontiers uh, literarily and in terms of insight and the sheer fact of climbing the mountain of a sentence in Greek and getting something out of it makes what you get out of it infinitely precious and creates a tremendous impression on your truth tank. And then uh, the uh, difference between written languages, we've talked about that, and finally uh, how to do it. Uh, remember that the perils of a fourth or third language are that it, uh, it chases out the third or second language. And be mindful of that as you go forward. It may be that you're best thing you can do is work on your second language and really get that into shape and don't try the ambitious thing unless you are extremely in the right sense of the word ambitious and uh, courageous and uh, sort of not fearful and uh, but be aware that the third or the fourth language uh, has tremendous implications for the second or the third language and that is uh, really meaningful to me at this point in my life those are my little thoughts on foreign languages I hope they speak to you and I hope that you might uh, 
actually first have a little bit of uh, compassion on yourself in this area. Also, uh, take with a grain of salt when you read these accounts of these incredible people who have four or five languages. I was once, uh, I do want to close by two anecdotes. I was with a, uh, an American woman who spoke perfect German. Uh, she was roughly my age, a little younger, and she spoke perfect German, but she was an American who spoke obviously in English. She was a, she was an Amer- a Canadian, actually. Canadian woman. She spoke perfect English, obviously, and she was a Canadian. <clears throat> but then I would listen to her speak German and I would just be undone. It was like she, well, she took me aside one day and she said, well, what you don't know is that my mother is German. My mother grew up in Germany. So I learned as a little child, I learned German as well as English. My father didn't speak a word. So we spoke English in the house. My mother and I were alone. We, she spoke to me in German. So that's why my German is so good. Then another fellow I knew is a German man, actually, a very, very a fine linguist and his wife, an even probably better linguist. But in any event, he was a very fine man. He spoke impeccable English, uh, idiomatic English. Uh, you would have thought he was in a, a, a German, but with a strong English accented English. She'd studied uh, in Oxford, and, but he was a German, a German theologian, and was just fabulous in the language. And I complimented him after I knew him for a few years, and he sort of looked at me, said, well, you know, he said, there's actually something I haven't told you. And then he proceeded to tell me that in the region of, of uh, the, border over into, uh, the border over into Holland, where he'd grown up, the region of uh, uh, Western Germany, right near the Dutch border, there was a kind of flat kind of almost English, Anglo-Saxon spoken. That was the language of the, the the currency of his childhood in an agricultural community there, right on the Dutch border, where everybody spoke sort of almost a Saxon version that could have been English, if you'd listened. It was a kind of a melange of uh, of, of languages that, that actually was rooted in an ancient kind of Saxon plot Deutsch or something. I never quite understood what he really meant, but uh, he said I had an advantage. I grew up understanding the rudiments of English from the time I was a tiny, tiny person. Well, he also speaks fluent French. God damn it. But uh, you know what I'm... (coughs) Very often someone who is intimidating to you is someone who actually (coughs) learned another language as a child. And they have a tremendous uh, um, non-voluntary advantage over the rest of us. Um, And um, otherwise, uh, uh, it's a great thing to to shoot after a language. But after the age of about 50, um, all you best you can do is try to recover what you learned as a child, which is almost always there. If you make the effort, you'll find that it's waiting traffic. You know, that song, Traffic by Traffic, someone is crying to be heard. Well, that's your foreign language self, and I really appreciate your listening. Thank you, and God bless.